just the Q&A, mostly, I think. I think yeah. just Q&A, unless they answer us now. Can we answer those questions? Yeah, well, yeah. Will we answer what question? No, 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 oh, we're going to wait. We're, it's food for thought until the end. Thank you. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're glad you're still with us here on the last day of the conference. Um, let's see. Uh, just to make sure you're in the right session, this is called They Can't All Be Museums. So as long as you're in the correct place. Uh, we're going to get started. Um, this is part of the preservation track. Um, this year, uh, the Minnesota Historical Society uh, folded the Historic Preservation Conference into the AASLH conference, and uh, so they have this preservation track. And uh, I have to read a, a statement uh, because of the sponsor for the preservation track. So we'd like to thank 3M for its support of the conference's preservation track. 3M, headquartered in St. Paul, has operations in more than 65 countries, produces more than 55,000 products, and is a worldwide leader in innovation. So we want to thank 3M for sponsoring this portion of uh, the conference. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of introduction first, and then we're going to ask you a couple of questions we want you to think about. My name is Mary Warner. I'm from the Morrison County Historical Society. Uh, we're located in Little Falls, a couple of hours north on the Mississippi River from St. Paul here. And uh, I was asked to uh, lead this session because I'm part of the Little Falls Heritage Preservation Commission. And I've done quite a lot of work in helping people through our museum to do research on their historic buildings. Uh, for AASLH, I wrote a technical leaflet called House History, Some Assembly Required. And so I've had quite a bit of on-the-ground experience with um, uh, historic uh, building owners trying to deal with their buildings. Uh, I want to introduce, uh, we have Pat Sharon here, and uh, she is from Linden Hill, which is also in Little Falls, and we'll be getting to uh, describing their sites in just a moment. And I also want to introduce Joanne Kellner. She is from the Baudette Depot Preservation Alliance in Baudette, Minnesota, and she's traveled a long way to be here. <laughs> By road. <laughs> By road. <laughs> All right, so um, the first thing I want you to be thinking about as we do our presentation um, is, uh, I, I wanna ask you a question. How many of you are already dealing with how to use a historic building? Any of you? We help people do that. Okay, okay, so you have some connection to this. Uh, now, um, another a question for, that's food for thought is, does a building have to be historic to be preserved? So that's something to really be thinking about. Uh, I think that's a question we get. Uh, uh, sometimes most people think, oh, old building must, must be preserved, but, but what about a newer building? Does it have to be historic? Um, and then uh, as we're going through our presentation, I want you to be thinking about all the alternative uses for a building other than turning it into a museum, because that tends to be the first thing that people think of is, oh, we've got this great old house, let's turn it into a museum. What else could you use it for? All right, so we're gonna get going on um, some description of our two sites here that our guests are uh, taking care of, and I think we're gonna give you the mic so I can ask questions and then uh, let you answer them. Yeah, so. I think what we'll do is we'll start with your site and then we'll do Joanne's, all right?
Okay. So what we need to do is give a description of your site and, and exactly what you do there. So, um, Pat, how many buildings do you have at Linden Hill? That Too you're many. Too many. <laughs> um, we have nine and a half acres that we steward with two four-floor mansions, um, a carriage garage, a large caretaker's house beyond the mansions, a schoolhouse, a playhouse, a pavilion, a swimming, we call it the swim house in the small gazebo. Okay, and the swim house used to be a swimming pool, right? No, that's the pavilion. Oh, that's the pavilion. The swim house is down and back that they used to sw used when they were swimming in the river. Oh, see, there are more buildings on that site than I remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the pavilion used to be a swimming pool. An in-ground heated swimming pool. Okay, and it's been filled in. It's filled in. It's used as a pavilion now um, for receptions, et cetera. Um, can you explain the history of your sites? Um, so, so these buildings that you're taking care of, the site is called Linden Hill, but what's the historic significance? Well, the historic significance is that it was built in 1898 by two lumber well, I don't want to call them lumber barons. Their dads were lumber barons. Lumber men, bachelors, my husband said, I have to tell you they were bachelors, um, Charles Warehouser and Richard Drew Muzzer. Um, these fellows came to town when they were 25 and 26 years old, and they were going to run the lumber company, uh, the lumber mill and company that their um, fathers had come to town and started, and that's Frederick Warehouser and Peter Musser. Um, but but Frederick and, and Peter are the, the fathers. The, and the so, grandpas, we call them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we've got Charles Warehouser's got, home and Richard Drew Musser's right. home. So and, the son's homes. Yep. And from here, I'll call him Drew because yes. really he did prefer that. Um, these houses occupy a beautiful place, a little bluff over the Mississippi on one side, a pond on another side. Um, it's a gorgeous setting. It originally had much more land attached to it than what it has right now. Um, these houses were designed by architect Clarence Johnston, who is the same architect for the Congdon Mansion in Duluth. Um, and they're both of the houses are on the, the registry for. Yeah, the National Register of Historic mm -hmm. Places. Right. Okay. And um, can you explain kind of how the houses are situated on the property? I'm thinking about their proximity to each other. Well, I said bachelors built them, and they are gorgeous, but they were best friend bachelors, and they're right next to each other, probably 20 feet in between them. Um, had women been there, I'm sure they would have said, you guys, let's spread this out. We've got two miles down the river we can build anywhere. It is a beautiful piece of property, but um, they're a little bit close together for my liking. Although it is wonderful now that we're working on them, you know, logistically mm -hmm. it's wonderful for us, but yeah. Okay. Um, and I just want to point out that they did bring some trifold boards. Uh, uh, so the far one over there with the black background is for the um, Linden Hill site. And then this one here is for the Baudette Depot. So be sure to look at those. Um, so we've got a little bit of the history of the sites. And we know they were uh, the, 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 the main part of the uh, site was two homes. Uh, so obviously they were used as houses. Um, how were how was Linden Hill acquired um, by your organization, or who owns the site? Okay, I'm going to back it up a little bit to when Weyerhaeuser sold it. In 1920, Charles moved his family to Summit Avenue here in St. Paul, and he 
went to follow the lumberjacks north and west. He loved being with the lumberjacks. Drew, on the other hand, was the finance guy, and he stayed in Little Falls. So Charles and his wife, Frances Maud Moon Weyerhaeuser, sold their property and house. This is legend. I have not found the paperwork, and when I do, it is going to be posted all over the world <laughs> to Drew and Sally um, Muzzer for a handshake and a nickel because money had to cross palms at those times. Very good friends, and money was not really the object of this whole thing. Okay. The long, you want the long story or the go, short go story? For it. Go okay. For it. The Muzzers had three girls. Um, they had a foster daughter, Alice. They had an adopted daughter, Mary, and they had a birth daughter, Laura Jane. As years passed, and all three girls were raised equally, didn't matter what their status was, um, and they were educated by the Muzzers and moved off to go to school out east. Two of the girls, Alice and Mary, were married. Laura Jane, the birth daughter, was called home. Mom was sick in 1955, and so she was called home, which wasn't, I, I think, of the times that was not unusual to be the youngest and called home. Laura Jane was living in New York. She had gone to Juilliard and has a degree in music composition from there. Um, and anyway, she got called home, and she was not a happy girl. So after mom passes, she says to her 90-year-old father, who's living alone with the cook in the, house, in the mansion, four-floor mansion, I'm moving to the warehouser house. And he said, no, you're not. I'm not giving you a penny for it. Well, she took her inheritance from her mother and sunk it into that house. And so she moved 20 feet away into the other four floor. That was the greenhouse. The greenhouse, okay. yes. And um, so in between, that house had been used for many different things. But that's a whole other story. Um, Anyway, Laura Jane lived in that house until 1989 when she passed away at 73, and she gifted both houses and all of the contents actually to a trust. We always thought she gifted it directly to the city but she, of Little Falls, but she did not. The trust, in turn, turned it over to the city of Little Falls in 1991, and so that's how and we now, acquired them. Yeah, the city continues to own... The property. The city does continue to own the property. But who runs the property? Okay, we lease it for a, a dollar a year. And who's we? We, be, oh, thank you, <laughs> the Friends of Linden Hill. Um, and, and that story is another bit of a story. The city tried to, can I go into what the city did yes, with it? Yes, please do. Okay, mm -hmm. the city tried to run it as a, re a retreat and conference center. And these are my words no one else's, because of what I believe is mismanagement, it didn't work. See, Laura Jane not only gave both houses and all of the contents to the city, she gave a million dollars to the city, which was not invested. And I have to be very politically careful here, so that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but when that happened and their retreat and conference center failed in, in 2005, they decided they were going to close it and sell everything off. Well, when I say we literally have everything that the, the Muzzers ever had, we have pieces of paper, their underwear, their jewelry, their silver, absolutely everything. Um, so uh, the city was ready to sell it off in 2005. In 2006, they had um, everything valued. 
ready to go. And we went to the legislators from our area, Steve Wenzel and Greg Blaine at that time. And somehow they got through legislation, which I don't, has this been revoked? That, yes, it has been revoked yeah. at this point. Mm -hmm. At that time that they couldn't, the city could not sell anything that was on that national registry. Any national register Any. property in the city. And there are a lot of them lot that are city them. owned. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the city was kind of, what do we do with this now? You know, it's a blessing and a curse to be given a gift like this. And <clears throat> what we, we citizens of Little Falls did, a bunch of us got together and said, okay, we'll form a nonprofit. And if we can pay the bills, all the bills, the heating, the insurance, everything, can we try it for five years? They agreed, and we are on year eight. Fabulous. And, and I really wanted her to go into some of that uh, background because you can see that there's some difficulty in running historic sites. Okay. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting to see how they overcome the difficulties. Uh, so, um, how are, how is the site currently used? For our site is used for a variety of, of things. And I tried to, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a frog voice. Um, <clears throat> when I put the board together, I tried to put down educational pieces, and I also tr tried to put down things that we charge for. So there are paid events, and there are educational events. Being a, a nonprofit, education is a huge part of it, and many of us are previous educators, and that is a huge part of our volunteer base, too. And so we felt it was important that if we were going to steward these places, they were going to serve a purpose as well as pay the bills. So the board, I'm going to put this down because I talk mm -hmm. with my hands and then the papers are flying, sorry. Um, the board in their strategic planning um, phase decided that they would, because we have the two mansions and all these outbuildings, separate it. We had to divide and conquer and it, it really was hard for us to do this. But anyway, one of the mansions, the white one, the Muzzer home, is the mansion that we use for lodging, weddings, um, reunions, showers, all kinds of events, and even some of our fundraising events. From there, we realized if people are staying in that house, we also have to take care of the artifacts because, you know, they're going to disappear. People would just take, which we're really blessed. They have not, had not to that point done it to a huge degree that we know of. So we took the Weyerhaeuser house, um, and we house the most valuable things there. Um, we have a better security system there as well. We have security in, in all of our buildings, but the better one is in the, in the Weyerhaeuser home. And um, that's where we do our work on the artifacts, and, that's, and we also exhibit. So it's kind of a museum, but not... Uh, I don't know if we could actually ever claim museum status. We don't have professional people um, doing our conservation. And having said that, we have written grants to learn how to do those things. So we're kind of self-taught. Mm -hmm. I, I think you'll find that with lots of small museums. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So um, your funding sources, you've touched on this a little bit. Uh, you talked about um, the rentals mm -hmm. in the White House. Um, do you also do tours? We do tours. That's one of the things I'm involved with. Um, I'm the chair of the Heritage Preservation Committee, which is near and dear to my heart, but I also do t the tour guide committee. Um, being an educator, I felt we had to tell the story, and I feel very strongly we have to tell the story of both families. While the Mussers were there longer, the Weyerhaeusers were there, they built the house, their story deserves to be told as well. And so we do tours, we do bus tours, we have a huge event coming up. In fact, I forgot to bring... Boy, are they going to be mad at me. Bring any brochures for that. Um, the Christmas event, Christmas in the Mansions, happens after Thanksgiving, and that is a huge fundraiser for us. Um, I had to fight to get this piece. I wanted one house at least decorated historically, and the other one, they have volunteers who just do whatever they they the, want, and it's beautiful. It's right. gorgeous. So they, they decorate the rooms in Christmas themes in the one Correct. house, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so it would yep. be you know, a Christmas tree in each room and then however yep. they want to decorate yep. it. Okay. Yep. Um, did I answer that? Yes. Yes, okay. you did. Um, and I was going to ask, do you have paid staff? You've mentioned volunteers hmm. quite a bit. So we have two part-time paid staff in administrative staff and a contracted housekeeper who comes in after, um, the, the Muzzer mansion sleeps 23. And so after people have been there, she thoroughly cleans and and it, depending this week there's a quilt retreat there so she's she had a lot of prep for that putting up tables getting out lights and that sort of stuff but the rest we have a hundred volunteers thank god because i don't think it would work without it um okay so uh what kind of community support do does your site have and it can be funding it can be like you said the volunteers but what other what uh community support do you um, have we do have a lot of, we have a lot of partnerships, a lot of partnerships, and some of them are odd bedfellows. Um, the school district comes, and they have done some gardening with us for their egg classes, and they've got a landscape class. So we have 23 formal gardens, and they're all adopted by volunteers, but they, they came in and they did the, the front entrance, and they have... Um, cut back the buckthorn, and they have, you know, all the things that have to be done. So the school district is a huge partner for us. The Franciscan sisters have partnered with us on the educational pieces. I've learned a lot of things from them. Um, the, the corporate folks in town, the, the businesses are wonderful in Little Falls. They support all of us. And um, we do, uh, some people will write grants for, um, Walmart and Target and some of these folks are really quite giving. Fleet Farm just gave us $1,200 for a mower that, I mean, that would have taken us forever to raise money for. So, but fundraising is a huge part. And, and as you know, businesses are a part of fundraising. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, what you've touched on this a little bit, but what challenges are there in running your site mm, from day to day? Never enough money, enough time, enough staff and um, we do not have a volunteer coordinator that this is working with this many volunteers is kind of amazing because people have come in and they have their area that they love for example one of our volunteers Dennis is just a fanatic gardener well he has developed and and does everything with the garden and developed a program for it and he runs these 32 gardeners or the gardens 
uh, there's almost 60 gardeners total. But anyway, he runs all of that smoothly and has it looking pristine for a wedding or, or any other event. But he took that on himself. I took on the heritage part myself. And tour guiding when it was in its infancy, I'm kind of giving that up to someone else right now. Um, so it just seems like I went to a session yesterday about volunteers and how they get their volunteers and then match the skill, et cetera. Yep. Well, we have people who came in with a skill and they matched themselves. And I don't know how it happened, but it, was, it just happened. We have a, grant, a person who likes writing grants. And she's just new to our board, but we've gotten a couple of grants since then. Fabulous. So. Okay, so you mentioned that you, you don't have a volunteer coordinator, and you mm -hmm. talked a little bit about the person who does the housekeeping, but who are your other two paid staff? Oh, what do they do? They're absolutely wonderful. Uh, Christina Gutwald actually works over at the Lindbergh. She's an interpreter over at the Lindbergh site as well in her free time. And uh, Joelle Muschel, and they are relatively new. They've been there a year, but um, they're a very dy dynamic team who just simply work well together. They, they do everything from the, the book work to any typing that needs to be done. Like when I called and said, okay, I need da-da-da pictures to take with me, they had them printed off, ready to go, and that day they had a big volunteer picnic for 100. The, the volunteers came to the pavilion Thursday night, and, we, and they had all this done. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to me. But they're young, too. <laughs> Energetic. <laughs> yes. Um, how would you say your site is like a museum, and how is it not like a museum? It's not like a museum because it is not... Um, as formal as, as some museums are now. I know mu the trend for museums, at least from some of the articles I've been reading, is take off the chains and let people touch. That's what I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm seeing a little bit, a lot of that. Well, we've never had that. So people feel real free to touch. It drives me crazy. But they feel real free to pick up the Limoges piece of glassware and say, Oh, that's a Limoges, and I'm just dying inside. Be, you know, you really shouldn't touch. You can put up all the signs you want. It doesn't work. How is it like a museum? Um, I would say for us, it's like a museum because we are trying to preserve these artifacts. At least take care of them. We're stewarding them. And so, you know, I'm 61 years old. I'm going to not be there for, another, you know, however long. We're trying to also bring in the young generation to be interested to take over for us because I'm the young one there. They, I mean, our, ours go from my age to uh, I think we've got one who's 90. I know we've got one who's 90. She's okay. a tour guide, and she's a darn good <laughs> tour guide. Oh, and Claire is 10, so I have to wait. Oh, go there you go. Claire is 10, and she's a good tour guide, so the two of them. So it, it, it's a back-and-forth thing for us. You know, we don't have the training to take care of things like a museum would, should. Um, but, but we want to. Mm -hmm. So that's my best explanation yeah. on that. Your heart's in the right place. And it you is. do have a collection, which is we part of what makes you a museum. Yes. We have divided the permanent collection into 50 smaller ones. And... Um, there's, there's simply no way that we can store it properly. We try. I mean, we spend all of our money from the heritage preservation. We try to 
get everything that we have to to your standards. And when, she's she's the history, she's the museum person. So I, I'd say the standards that you are using, but I'm sure we're we're not meeting the mark, but we're trying. I'm just going to touch on this for a moment because I know this has happened a couple of times. You have a huge collection, and I was going to ask you about managing that collection. How often do you try to do an inventory? I think this has happened a couple of times. Yeah. When, it, when the city opened it up back in 91, they had three elder hostels through St. John's University, and they did an amazing job on doing the first inventory. And I was, I was part of that when I was, I'm a librarian by trade, so there are 10,000 books in these houses that I've been through three times. Right. So, so that's just the book collection. That's just the book collection. <laughs> and so um, it, three times we have done it, and we are still in that process. We're fine-tuning it, though. We're getting to the point we have somebody who's really um, quite structured on that, and that helps. Okay. Again, volunteer. So, um, you, you know, we talk about collections within um, a site, but uh, do you consider um, the buildings as artifacts? And yes. how, how do you work to maintain and preserve the buildings? Our buildings are definitely artifacts. They're 116 years old. We had the 115th last year. Um, they're still in relatively good shape for buildings of that age, but they still need a lot of work. We have a volunteer maintenance committee who works every day on it. They do the basics. Um, it's just a group of retired guys. One's an engineer. One's retired from Camp Ripley. You know, there are about 10 of them. And they come every day, and the only thing we have to have is coffee and treats. <laughs> every day. Fresh. <laughs> don't, don't leave many icky coffee. So, um, and, and they take care of it. It gets done. We have had to, um, we had some stuff, uh, roofed this year and so we've had we hire professionals because they're so high at, oh, at yeah. pitch we also had it painted the muster house was painted this year warehouser next year we got a grant from valspar for the paint we got a grant for twenty three thousand dollars for scraping the paint because it was lead-based and then um we had to pay an additional ten thousand for the actual painting of it Okay. Um, now, if support were to dry up for your site, hmm. what would your organization do? That's a really tough question. You know, I spent a lot of time discussing this la again last night with my husband, and I talked with every board member about it. No one had a really good answer because they don't believe it's going to happen. And I said, you know, that's pretty darn naive of all of us because we are all getting older. And um, we have a really good base right now, and we have people really invested in it. I don't know the answer to the question. I really don't have a, a firm answer to what we would do because we can't, we can't get it in our brain that it could possibly happen, Mary. Uh, my question was, if support were to dry up for the site, what mm -hmm. would you do? What would your organization do? Mm -hmm. so. And I think that um, prior to that happening there'd be a, another big influx of, of a push to take care of things. And if it happens, it goes back to the city, and the city will probably will. sell it off. Yeah, they'd have to deal with it. They would have to deal with it. And, mm -hmm. and the city is more fond of these buildings than they were before, but you, we really have had to um, baby them along with us. Mm -hmm. And we don't make any ruffles, and we don't 
cause any trouble and we just pay our bills. And the bills are quite lofty. Our budget is 110000 a year. We were originally, back in the day, given 150000 from the corpus that was left from the trust. Right. We have not touched that. So how much is left of the corpus, do you know? Um, about 300000 Okay. Um, but because they invested it now, all these uh, years later. Yes, yes. Um, but we don't get any of the interest from that. We, we got our 150000 and that and five years, and that's all we got. And we have not touched the 150 yet. And our other budget is about 110000 total. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Pat, for mm -hmm. your section of this. And we're okay. going to take questions at the end, <clears throat> but you can clap if you want. <laughs> thank you. All right, now up is Joanne Kellner from the Baudette uh, Depot. And uh, so we're going to run through the same series of questions for her. Um, can you describe how many, de uh, how many buildings are part of your site? To get, give us a basic description of what you're taking care of. I'm going to get out here a little further yes. so <laughs> I'm not hiding behind the sign. And I'll reference this in a minute. Uh, it's one railroad depot. It's actually the fourth depot on that site. The first depot was built in 1901 by Canadian Northern when a line was uh, built uh, across Canada. And there was this huge competition in Canada at the time uh, to get lines from the East Coast to the West Coast. So Canadian Northern worked a little deal with the state of Minnesota to go on the south side of Lake of the Woods instead of the north side. This was shorter and cheaper, and this is all rock. So they, they got a sweet deal, a 99-year lease that's just been renewed. Um, and they started that first depot in a small general store. They soon built a standalone depot that burned in um, 1908. They built another one, another frame structure that burned in 1922-23. And by this time, the Canadian Northern was merged with the Canadian National. Uh, mergers were taking place back then, just like they are now. And uh, the Canadian National was in the habit of building brick depots, and usually dark red. But for some reason, um, they only could have yellow, pale yellow brick. So the Bedette Depot was built a pale yellow brick, a soft brick. And um, that depot had the usual um, parts that you'd find in a depot, a freight room, a general lobby, bathrooms, the ticket office. Uh, it had an apartment upstairs for the station master. And it had a fine ladies' waiting room, and it had customs area and holding facilities in the damp, dark basement for people who needed to go uh, for further processing by law enforcement. And today, the layout is still pretty much the same, except we got rid of the holding facilities. How big is the property that it sits on? Is it fairly small, like mostly just the depot area, or do you have a bigger stretch? It's leased. Uh, we have a sublease from CN. And I would say it's about mm, one acre, something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. You mentioned yellow brick, and, and uh, of course, I'm thinking of Little Falls yellow brick. Um, I'm wondering if they, they had a contract or something <laughs> that, you know, Little Falls was famous for sending out its yellow brick places. So I'm wondering if when they built it, that's, they got a contract with somebody producing yellow brick. So, yeah, uh, that soft yellow stuff. <laughs> I assume, and, and I assume, you know, that maybe that's all they could get in a short order, or maybe there was a factory on one of their lines that they could, you know, get it hauled for free. And so I, we don't know where the brick came from. But when we did the restoration, the closest matching brick was found in uh, Kentucky or Tennessee. 
Oh, okay. Um, now, uh, what's your organization's name that subleases the depot that runs it? Okay, so the organization is called the Depot Preservation Alliance. Uh, I've been involved as a, a volunteer for um, almost eight years, and um, they um, they organized in 1997. The depot was actually uh, abandoned by the Canadian National in the late um, 1980s. They had stopped passenger service in the late 70s, and so after the late 80s, it sat there empty, and it was about to be bulldozed down. Uh, the town was ready to do the close encounter with a wrecking ball. Uh, they had just done that with the previous uh, courthouse, which was uh, an old school. And people suddenly said, no, 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 we can't let this happen. We only have two other historic buildings in the town. Because most of the town was burned in a fire in 1910. It was thousands and thousands of acres that were burned across northern Minnesota. Quite a few people died. The 1908 depot did not burn, but it played a crucial role in that people uh, fled to the depot to get a train across the river to Canada and safety. And after that, buildings were thrown up in a hurry, uh, often poorly built. But in the teens, a bank and a hotel were built, and they still survive. So there's sort of three elderly buildings in the town. <laughs> um, what is the legal structure of your organization that's running that? It's a 501c3 nonprofit. Okay, and, and you formed specifically to save the depot? Exactly. And at the same time, in 19, did you say 1997? Right. Okay. Um, so how are you uh, currently operating the site. What are you using the depot for? Well, if we have time at the end, I'd like to share the story between the 1997 and 2012. But what we're using it for now, uh, starting in 2012, we've had concerts indoors and out. Uh, it's a mixed-use cultural community center. We've had art shows, workshops, kids' arts days in the summer, uh, railroad-themed days, old-fashioned Christmases, potluck dinners, bake sales, you name it, it's open to the public for um, all kinds of events, um, except if it's a use, if somebody wants to rent it for a meeting, we do charge, but almost everything else is free. Please do go back to the 1997 to 2012. I think it cut off your history. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Um, so this uh, 1997, these people really cared, you know, about the depot, and they organized, and for 10 years, they really, really struggled. Um, they did get the roof repaired, and they got the windows boarded up, and um, they were able to tap into a small city's housing grant, so some folks came in and started to work on the apartment upstairs. But if you look at those photos over there, and on the far, uh, your far left, you can see a you know, pale yellow building, and there's later, you can see weeds growing around it. And so, um, in December of 2006, uh, a friend approached me and said, you know, are you very busy right now? And oh, like an idiot, I said, no, not too bad, you know. And I should have said, I'm swamped, you know. Uh, so she said, uh, well, we really need some help, and I wonder if you could come and see if you could help us. So I said, oh, okay, I'll give you a couple years. And so I went and listened to the meetings, and, and it went every month it went on and on, you know, like, we don't have any money, and we're waiting for an angel to bring us money, and somebody would drop off a ton of money, and we can do it wherever we want. And I said, and you've been doing this for 10 years, right? Right. And how is it working for you? Well, <laughs> not so hot, you know. So I said, well, before you can ask people for money, you have to have a plan of what you're going to do beyond that save the depot mentality. And they were really stuck in that, you know, mode. Um, and so... Um, I was involved with another organization, 
and uh, we received a planning grant uh, to do a reuse study, uh, and it was done by the University of Minnesota Center for Urban and Rural Affairs, um, based on input from the community, and uh, the decision was that the community really needed a, some kind of an arts and cultural center. There just is nothing there. It's a very small town. There's only 4,000 people in the whole county. There's only two towns. One has about 1,100 people, and one has about 200 people. And there's a huge swamp in the uh, south half of the county, so there's not many people. But um, we did this reuse study, and I said, okay, now we can, we can you know, move ahead. And about that time, it was the third and final year of a, a Federal Department of Transportation uh, grant application, and one of the eligible categories was the restoration of a transportation-related building. And I said, this is perfect. And they're like, yes, but it requires a match, 20%. Where are we going to get the money? And I said, we'll go to the county. We'll borrow it from them. I had worked in county government before, and I knew that was a pretty good possibility. Um, and so we, uh, we needed some cost figures, and so I contacted a friend of a friend and said, will you walk through and you know, give us a ballpark idea of how much this is going to cost? And, and he said, oh, I think you could do it for about 150 And I thought, no way. I mean, you can't even build a house for 150 let alone remodel a, a 1923 railroad depot, but you got to start somewhere. So we submitted that first grant application, and um, it was approved, and the board was like, oh, man, we're going to get a check for 150 and we can do whatever we want. It's like, no, that's not how it works. The money was through the Department of Transportation, and that meant project memorandums just as if you were building a road or a bridge. Lots more paperwork. But we finally got through that hurdle and then started going out for better cost estimates, which kept going up and up and up. And um, so finally, by the fall of 2010, we had uh, pretty good cost estimates, um, pretty good funding secured, and went out for architectural uh, services and then later uh, contractors. And uh, Anderson and Hammock of Superior, Wisconsin, uh, were awarded the contract. If any of you are from Minnesota or know of Split Rock Lighthouse up on the North Shore, they did the restoration on Split Rock. So they're really, really qualified people. And they, they worked the whole year. Um, they stayed in the apartment upstairs. They had uh, air mattresses and sleeping bags. And they just, it worked well for them because they had security for their tools, you know, so they didn't have anybody messing around. And they worked incredible hours and did a great job. So um, it was done. Uh, we had grand opening in October of 2011. Uh, and they continued to work through the end of the year. Uh, but they finished up in that, in that one year. So it was quite a project. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you touched on a few things that I was uh, uh, having follow-up questions on. Uh, one of the things I wanted to know is what's your annual budget, and, and where do you get your funding from now? Okay, so the annual budget goes up and down depending on whether we have an exhibit project uh, or not. But the annual operating budget is, like, really small, maybe, I don't know, I'm not really involved in that right now, but I'm thinking mm -hmm. it's dollars $30,000, something like that. Um, the operating money comes from the rental of the apartment and the uh, custom space, and then we charge for renting the space if you want to have a meeting or a shower or birthday party or something like that. Uh, and we have donations, and we have fundraisers, memorials, and we have membership dues. And um, But years when we have... a an exhibit project going, you know, because uh, then, then the budget goes up. Uh, but I keep that money separate. I mean, I make them keep that money separate, you know, so that that doesn't get, um, they don't think, oh, we have lots of money. When maybe they don't. Okay. And, and I'm going to follow that up with um, what other community support do you have? 
uh, as, far, as far as volunteers and anything like that that right. would help you with running your site? Well, we have, a, we have a very dedicated group of volunteers that really, really care about the building. And they do, they do the lawn mowing, the snow plowing. Uh, they host events. They uh, take tour groups through. Uh, they take on the, the bake sales, the old-fashioned Christmases, whatever needs to be done. They do it. Fabulous. Um, now, do you have any paid staff? We have no paid staff. That's a real challenge. So is, is your board then, I would assume, a working board? Your board takes on most of the day-to-day stuff if it needs to happen. Correct. The board has to take on some responsibilities and, and uh, obligations and be actively involved. They can't just come to the meeting and say, okay, see you next month. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what challenges are there in running your site? Well, the, you know, I think a lot of people would say the biggest challenge in running a site like ours is money. But in my opinion, the biggest challenge is leadership. In our small rural area, you know, remotely located with an older than average population and a below average household income, there are not a lot of people that you can tap for these positions who have the financial and management leadership skills, people who have a passion for the project, and people who are willing to stick with it, even if there's, um, you know, setbacks and failures, and people who can deal with People who can make sure they got everybody on the bus going forward. <laughs> and uh, people who don't try to throw you under the wheels or in the ditch. Uh, you really need people all going forward committed together. And we have a couple of other partnerships that have been real helpful getting this project to this date. Uh, County Board was very supportive in the beginning. They wanted the building something done with it. I mean, they didn't really want to tear it down. They didn't want the expense of tearing it down and dealing with asbestos and, and solid waste landfill issues. Um, so they were, they were quite happy to give that 25000 And then later, uh, when we were about to pour sidewalks, I went one day and I said, the contractor says if I have another $7,000, I can make the sidewalk go this much further. So I said, I need $7,000 and I need it today. And they said, okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think they were so taken aback that I was just going to show up and say, I need $7,000 today, you know, and so... Uh, so they... <laughs> right, so... Um, and then um, the building, the roof on the track side is about 125 feet long and has this long overhang over the platform on the train side, a track side. And so um, we talked about putting uh, eave troughs on and uh, the contractor said, you know, if you do that, I mean, you deal with snow and ice, and by the time we start on this end and we get all the way to the other end, the, the eave troughs are going to be barely hanging on, and you get snow and ice, they're all going to fall down. So uh, we decided that we would do a rain garden. Uh, I'm involved in a couple of other organizations, and uh, so uh, we did a partnership with the uh, Northwest Minnesota Regional Sustainable Development Partnership, the Extension Service, the Soil and Water Conservation District and the Master Gardeners, and uh, the County Highway Department came in and did all, uh, did all the grading and the surveying to get the layout right, and uh, then we put in this wonderful rain garden to uh, collect most of the runoff from the roof. Um, so how would you say that your site is like a museum, and how is it not like a museum? Well, it's... Um, because its mission is to be a cultural center for the community, it's, you know, first off, it's, that's not its mission. But it's like a museum in that we have a number of artifacts from the last station master that was there. 
when uh, CN decided to close the building, they gave him, uh, this is the story, they gave him an hour or so to take what he wanted. So he took a desk and a typewriter and an adding machine, the teletype uh, machine, the hoop that was to hand off messages to passing trains, a few other things. And when we were um, working on the, um, uh, when we were doing the, the grant applications, this major grant, the Federal Transportation Grant, it required that we create an exhibit telling the story of transportation and its role in the settlement of the area. And so uh, as we were working on that idea, we said we can use these artifacts in that exhibit. And so um, on the right, it shows that exhibit is currently in production at the moment. Um, but so we have these artifacts, a few, you know, and we're using those. But it's not like a, a museum in that we use it for um, many community events. Okay. Uh, now you've you've mentioned now that you you do have a small collection, and mm -hmm. that you may, How do you maintain that? How do you make sure they're you know all being taken care of, especially if you don't have paid staff? Well. I walk around once in a while and, and see if, if everything looks okay. We Yesterday in one of the sessions it said do not have signs that say do not touch, but we do have some signs that say do not touch. <laughs> so I'll have to figure that out. Uh, but I'll leave that to consultants. That's their job. They can figure out how do we address those artifacts and not have signs that say do not touch. Okay. And, and then now you've also mentioned exhibits. Now you're working on the one that's transportation-based, but do, have you had other exhibits? And then how do you maybe get the artifacts or the things you want to display for those exhibits? Okay. So um, when we started on this idea of this historic transportation and settlement exhibit, uh, there were, um, we had a couple of like spin-off ideas. The people that we've been working with are Alan uh, Nasca and Carnita Tumula. They're from Duluth uh, Venture Exhibits. They are fabulous people. They're so talented. And um, on the outside of this depot, remember I said soft yellow brick? And in the 20s and 30s and 40s, pencils had real lead. And it's not only teenagers how, who have this irresistible urge to leave their name and date and town or whatever someplace. So over 100 people left signatures on those soft yellow bricks. And because the roof hangs over and it's on the north side, it's protected from the weather. So the consultant said, well, we should do something with this. And at first we looked at like put, trying to put a plexiglass thing over it and what we thought, you know, we need to do something more interpretive. So we thought, who, who were these people? Were they early settlers? And we did confirm a couple of the names were early settlers. Um, well, a lot of them turned out to be railroad workers who apparently were just killing time. Uh, but were they travelers? Were they um, orphan train riders? We do know orphan trains pass through Canada, just like they did in the U.S. And um, were they hobos or people from Depression era seeking work? So we researched as many names as we could get a town and, and some detail on. And then um, I took creative license with uh, those that had a name and a town and a date, and I did research. And I created a whole booklet of letters from the rails. They're all posted, bought at Minnesota with a date, and it's dear folks, and you know, it's blah, 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 um, based on where they had come from or just stuff I had read about people traveling. And that was really fun. And so, so the exhibit is four panels, and it's... Um, you, you can walk with your mic, so you yep. can head on over. <laughs> so it's, um, it's this one on the lower um, left here. And... Um, uh, it has this, those categories, the hobos, orphan train riders, um, the um, Depression era, and, and kind of local people who left their marks. 
one of the most popular things with people has been that the consultants made uh, a set of hobo signage cards, uh, you know, kind of like memory cards on one side. Kids and adults love it, you know. So these are the consultants that do fabulous work. And so then we said, well, you know, it'd be really fun to have some train seats because David Grabitsky came up one time and he said, you need a place for people to sit in an exhibit. And we were working on this concept, this model here, and we were going to put the train seats in that bay window until the family donated these items after the station master uh, died. So then it's like, okay, plan three, let's put those things in there. We still hadn't done the final uh, funding, so we put that in there, but we still had this great idea about the seats. So we decided we would make a um, cutaway section of a train car, a passenger car, and we got two 1940s era uh, rail seats, restored them. Um, Alan and Carnita did all of that. And then um, we wanted to, um, because it had to go in a brick corner, we wanted it to have uh, the, the idea that you are arriving uh, on the train and what would you see out the window. And of course, it's a brick wall. So um, we got uh, Scott Murphy from Duluth, who's a Minnesota, who's a fabulous mural artist. And he painted a window view as you would be arriving at the Bidette Depot, the, the, the track side of the depot you would see and the people who were there waiting to get on or get off or whatever. And so it just made it a really cool exhibit. We got some old luggage, and we have all kinds of uh, hands-on stuff here. And there um, doesn't show in that photo, but we have a whole bunch of little cards that you can take down about train, about foods, about jobs, um, about routes. And, and there's lots of Canadian information, too, because we're on, you know, next door to Canada. Um, I'm not sure if this was discussed, but are you, is your depot on the National Register? It is. It is. Okay. Um, now, how do you take care of the maintenance and preservation of the building going forward? Okay. Well, uh, the renter upstairs is responsible for the day-to-day cleaning, sweeping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, that kind of thing. Um, and then um, lately, uh, except for things where you need tradespeople, plumbers, electricians, uh, people either have skills themselves or somebody in their family or they know somebody they can lean on to do something. Um, it's just been done by volunteers. Okay. Um, and then uh, if support were to dry up for your site, what would your organization do? Well, I, I met somebody some years ago, and he had this little tagline, what if, what else, why not? And uh, so um, I, I keep proposing to the board, you know, what if we do this? What if we do that? Or why don't we do that? You know, what else can happen? You know, and so uh, it means more creativity. The membership has uh, increased since the restoration was completed, and it stayed stable. Uh, it definitely needs to um, to grow, but we have a limited population, and we do need to find more funding. They really, really want to and need to hire a director. What is your membership rate? Membership rate mm -hmm. uh, for uh, seniors, I think it's uh, $15. It's very cheap. I've mm -hmm. talked to them about you need to boost that up. Uh, and I think normally it's only about $50 for a household, but for seniors it's like $15. Okay. Um, now, uh, that's the end of my round of questioning for you. Is there anything else that uh, I forgot to ask you that you wanted to add? Um, just that the... the, the I wanted to know, are, and have any of you been through this kind of a process from the rescue, the renovation, and the startup? Anybody been through that? One, couple, couple people? Great. Right, okay. How many people have a project on the wait list that they need to do? 
Okay, so at least one. So I would just say, you know, it's quite a journey. Um, it's, and the road is um, long and winding and full of potholes. And it'll, <laughs> and it'll take longer than you anticipated, and it'll cost more than you ever thought. But in the end, it's, it can be really satisfying that you've done something for your community, that you know, you've been able to mobilize people. And it's, it's all about finding the, you know, getting the right people on the bus or the right horse on the right race. You know? And uh, so uh, it's all about getting that, that bunch of people together who have the skills and the passion and, and, uh, and the motivation and the drive to stick with it. Thank you. Um, Pat, was there anything else you wanted to add before we go into questions? Ditto. Oh, ditto. Ditto. It's, it's all about finding the right people with the passion who are willing to step forward. And it, it, does, it does matter. History matters. Okay, let's, let's give our speakers a, a round of applause. And now we're going to open it for questions. And because this session is being recorded, we ask that you use the microphone. So if you have a question, please come up uh, to, to use the microphone, or we'll try to trot it out to you. Uh, the other thing we want to do is give you about the last 10 to 15 minutes, if we don't have acres of questions, to be able to come up and look at these and then uh, ask questions individually. So um, open for questions now. The purpose of this uh, then was just to show how without being a museum you can uh, preserve something and you can uh, uh, have educational commitment to show something to the community or something that you believe the community ought to remember and something the community ought to appreciate without actually being a museum. Was this the point of the session? Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, when this session was set up, I know one of the things I talked with Michael Coop about, he's from the Minnesota Historical Society, and he asked us all to do this session, um, is that typically when there's a house that needs saving or any historic building, the first thing people think is, let's turn it into a museum. And, uh, and that we can't have like a hundred house museums in one area. <laughs> it, it's uh, house museums are having, they're struggling right now uh, to get uh, people to come through. And so we have to think about our buildings in a way uh, that gets them to be used and saved, but not necessarily as a museum. Thank you. Yeah. To that end, I'd, I'd like to add that I think, back to the education, I think that's a huge piece for house museums and, and any museum actually is, is get people in there and have them like our, our Pauline's cooking classes. Pauline was the cook there and they love to get the hands on in her kitchen. I mean, it's, it, people like to go back in time. It's, it's fun it's, and it's all different economic levels. You know, we try to have programming so that some of it's free. Some of it has a small cost. We have, um, like, History on the Hill is coming on October 30th, and there's a little bit more of a cost, but we give a break to members and that sort of thing, too. But a lot of education programs can be fun. Yeah, this, this idea of educating people about a historic site, if you 
uh, maybe continue using something, but uh, a building, but without ever communicating that history, the next time it's in danger, now you're fighting the, the fight all over again to educate people about why it's important. So this idea of, of continuing on with the education in some way, whether it's um, with the plaques that go on houses, we do that a lot at our, our HPC. We have a, a historic homes uh, plaque uh, uh program and then we also have plaques on our downtown buildings so um it's sort of always keeping that in people's minds what the history of something um, some particular site is mary can you address the dewey radke house <laughs> it's, it's a house that was in, in little falls gorgeous home and they didn't tell their story and they disappeared but. right um and I can't remember the exact timeline on this, but the Dewey Radke house was one of those yellow brick houses, so built with the bricks of, you know, from Little Falls Brickyards. Uh, it was situated right in front of Pine Grove Park. And so the house itself wasn't necessarily any more special than any other brick house in Little Falls, but the sighting of it was. And so it was very recognizable as a house um, be, being uh, sort of framed by the virgin pine that continues to be part of that park. And um, a number of years ago, there was a tussle. The city has, it was given to the city. And uh, so here's the city sitting on this house, not knowing what to do with it. And they spent years and years trying to find a use for this house. Well, um, an, another organization came in uh, a few years ago, and they were renting the house for like a dollar uh, a year, easy peasy, and, and so they were using it, and um, they got into a tussle with the city. So you have to be careful of your politics when you're dealing with uh, a city property, and um, they basically made the city mad, <laughs> and uh, they uh, ended up... So the city wanted to tear down the house, and they, I think, had a lawsuit to stop that. They stopped it briefly, um, but then as soon as the, um, the decision was made in the case, uh, the court decided that, yes, the city can tear it down if they want to, and the city did it immediately. Yeah. No like waiting. Within three days? Within three days. And it almost was like a cover of darkness thing where they did it without telling anyone. Uh, so um, our, our city, of course, was just up in arms over losing this house. Uh, I could see where the city was. Uh, we need to get rid of it. We can't figure out a use for it. Um, but... Uh, you know, sort of we lost that string of the history and why was that house important. And we, we kind of let politics rule what happened in that particular case. So, um, you know, sadly, we in the historic preservation field in Little Falls have to kind of deal with the fallout of that. You let this house go. And uh, even though we continue to do preservation work all over town. Thanks. You know what? It was not within our purview. It was outside our district. <laughs> so we didn't have a say. Um, and I believe it came to the HPC, and it wasn't when I was on it. So it was one of those things where, you know, we had no say in it really because it was not in our district. We're trying to... Um, Wait a minute. You know, interestingly, no, we, we cover our historic district. Isn't it? And and that's kind of what yeah, I, I okay. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I work for the. I, I'm on the Minneapolis Heritage. Right. President, so we're every the whole city is covered. Yeah. By well, us. and this this is one of the things I think that we need to sort of move sorry. forward on and look at the entire city. But at this point, we have a district, and that's what we have say over. 
is the downtown district. We don't really have say over the whole city. Do we HBCs normally cover the whole district then? Okay, so just if there's one established in the city, then it covers the city. Yeah. Don't cover. Maybe other cities don't cover the whole cities. I'm pretty sure you, you do. Yeah. Okay, that's something I'm going to take back. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Are there other questions? Yep. I'll go back here I just had a really quick comment. It's my understanding. I'm on the city of Farmington Heritage Preservation, and it does cover the whole city, as far as I understand. But we make recommendations to city council, and then city council makes a decision after that. And that is part of it, like with the Dewey Radke. If the city council was, you know, we could decide one thing as an HPC, and they could say we're going to do this instead. So that is part of it. You know, we we can make recommendations. The project that I'm from Pipestone, Minnesota. And our project currently is the Masonic Hall, which was begun as the Opera Hall. The Masons remodeled it. It's now used the basement. The main floor is our performing arts center, so we have a renter. It was given to us for a dollar with uh, $40,000 that we put a stranglehold on them before they <laughs> disbanded. But that's we've contacted Pam. We've... Mm -hmm. And... I guess we're seems like we're being hung out to dry with them. They sent us a note and said we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing, and and we're at a real standstill with that. Um, just got a major grant, third round to redo to re uh, do our windows mm -hmm. historically. So we were just thrilled with that. Our site is all connected. It's around a historic corner. Our building is the old city hall and fire hall. So we could possibly reuse it as space for us, but we want to see what we could do with the building besides use it as a museum. Okay. And, you know, this is interesting. As I, I was getting ready for this session, I, I have this stack of articles I've been collecting um, online, and um, I'm constantly seeing... Uh, uh, interesting uses for old buildings. Um, the breweries here in the Twin Cities have uh, been redone, and you know they tend to be mixed use when they're um, these really big spaces. So they'll have some living quarters. Often it's artist living quarters, um, and then maybe art workspace. Uh, so um, you know when you're thinking about reusing buildings, you know always think about living space as a possibility. Um, but uh, uh, one of my favorite stories about the reuse of a building is the Faribault Woolen Mill, which closed down and then reopened as the Faribault Woolen Mill. So they actually just brought it back to their original purpose, which I, I think is fabulous. Um, but, uh, you know, if you want to, when we're having our time to just come look up at exhibits here, you can come look through these articles for some other ideas for uh, ways to use your buildings. Um, you mentioned that, that Preservation Alliance of Minnesota, PAM, um, is sort of leaving you to try to figure this out. And I think they've been retooling. Uh, they're trying to figure out how they can be most effective. And it's very difficult for their organization. They were contacted about Dewey Radke. Come save this building, right? And they can't do something when they're contacted last minute. Uh, we have the same issue with the Morrison County Historical Society. People were like, well, where were you? Why didn't you save it? I'm like, 
we can't get in front of the bulldozer. It's by that point, it's too late. So we have to be working on these um, uh, on these historic preservation projects long before we get to the bulldozer stage. You know, we really have to be uh, through our HPCs keeping track of things that are historic. Um, I'm a big mid mid century person. Uh, so mid-century 1940s to 1960s buildings, those are now old enough to be on National Register. We all ought to be looking at our modern buildings. And, and um, because they're, we're right now in that dangerous stage where people are going to start changing them. And uh, so, so it's about looking ahead and trying to um, head these things off before they get to that danger, dangerous point. Let me make a suggestion. Yeah, go ahead. I could make a suggestion for you. Um, you should have a Southwest Minnesota Regional Sustainable Development Partnership. It's probably headquartered out of Marshall, I think. And um, we use the Northwest one. Uh, they put up a grant of about $15,000 to do a reuse study, and it was done through the University of Minnesota Center for Urban and Rural Affairs. It really it gave credibility to the reuse idea instead of just coming to the community and saying, you know, Joe Blow thinks we should do this and John Green thinks we should do that by having outside professionals come in, take input, you know, and offer their uh, uh, resources. Uh, it, it was a great tool to move from stuck in the mud. And one more note. Um, we used a legacy grant for the same thing, for, for having them come in and do kind of a reuse thing. Legacy grant? Um, it's for those people who aren't Minnesotan. Oh, for you that aren't Minnesotan. Well, the legacy, a few years ago, the legislature passed. Uh, boy, I'm not well-versed on, on all of this, but um, something so that our, part of our tax money would go into this legacy pot, and then we could apply for our grants. There are different level grants that you can apply for, and this was the lowest level. Um, they kind of like getting in on the ground floor, and if you get in on the ground floor with something like that, then you kind of qualify for the mid, and I mean, doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it does help, at least that's what the, uh, our conservator told us, is it does help to get that small grant and then move up. In Minnesota, we voted for that amendment. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a uh, sort of related question. Um, knowing what cities can do to raise historic structures and knowing that the Friends of Linden Hill, if you disband, the property goes back to the city. If you all work to put any conservation easements on the property and knowing that some transportation money, uh, like T21 money, sometimes you're required to put easements on properties. Have you all been able to do any of that to try to ensure the future preservation of the site? We have along the river. We've done quite a bit of conservation along the river. Um, there's... Uh, Another agency, actually, that was before my time, but, um, well, it wasn't before my time. I wasn't paying attention to it. But anyway, um, they they had come in, and there's, what is the name of that, Mary? The water. It's not the Mississippi Headwaters Board, yes, is it? the okay. Mississippi Headwaters <laughs> Board, thank you very much, came in and, and did an evaluation and said, you need to have this, this, and this. And so we did go along with that, and, and were granted money on that, too. But do you have a legal easement on the property that prevents the city from doing anything with it? I if, think they do along okay. there. 
along okay. the river. Along the, city the river. can't do. And that was part of the thing when they wanted to tear it down and, and build condos or whatever they were going to do with it. Um, that that stop, kind of stopped them because, okay. well, it didn't stop stop them. They would have continued to use it for some, do something else, build something mm-hmm. else there. But because of sewer and all of that, yeah. Okay, so it, in, in essence, having the river there is a protection. It's been <laughs> great. Yeah. Really. Other questions? I'm from the Maplewood HPC, and our city is not interested in owning any of the properties that we're looking at designating as historic. So I'm wondering if anybody has any um, feedback or ideas on how you encourage private ownership of these historic properties. Um, actually, I believe private ownership is the best way. The, the problem is, how do you get those owners to keep preserving it? Um, the oldest house we have in Little Falls is from the 1850s. Uh, it's, a, I want to say, Greek Revival-style house. Um, there was a woman who owned it who brought it back to all of its glory, and uh, then, then she had to move. She got to be retirement age. She went back out east to be with her family, and the next family that got it completely trashed it. And, you know, what do you do about that? Um, thankfully, a, an owner after that seems to be keeping it maintained. Uh, it is probably the hardest thing. And I think, too, from a city standpoint, why would they want to own it? They lose that tax money, you know, the property tax if they own it. So um, really, I think it's about encouraging preservation among everyone to some degree, and I know it's not going to be something that's easy. You can't, you know, just sort of force that for, for you know, financial reasons and all kinds of reasons. But did anybody go to the thing yesterday on like kind of intro preservation? So they talked about how energy efficient buildings are. I mean, that's that's one way to go. It's if somebody is buying a building like that, it's much more sustainable than the super vinyl. Maplewood house that was built in the 70s or whatever, you know. And I'm actually interested in the commercial reuse building, not necessarily oh. the houses. The houses I, I see as an easier sell. Well, mm-hmm. You're talking about tax credits if they get designated. <laughs> then, then you're talking about getting tax, they can get tax credits if they get that house designated historic. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that's probably um, one of the difficulties we see on the ground is that people come to our historical society and say, well, what kind of financial help can I get for my business building uh, to, to redo it? And what kind of financial help can I get for my private house? And in some cases, and I believe here in uh, North Minneapolis, they're having some issues. Um, there was a storm that came through and really, um, really took out a lot of houses. And there are people who can't afford to fix them up. It, it was a low-income neighborhood. So how do we work among all levels of government to find ways to help people fund fixing up their houses and their businesses? Um, our HPC has a loan grant program to help with the facades of buildings within our historic district. So that's one level. But I'm not seeing that kind of thing necessarily for homeowners. And um, there was a this old house tax credit on the federal level, I believe. Um, but that has long since expired. But something along those uh, lines would be really helpful, I think, for, for homeowners trying to redo do their homes. And I'd like to comment about um, this, the city owning the property, too. Our city really does absolutely no work with it at all. Um, we are a city property, but we do everything from 
the snow removal to putting in um, any underground thing that has to go underground, it's, it's ours. And so basically with the, the, our lease agreement was when you sign this, we do nothing. We've been lucky to, enough to keep them as friends because we do hold to our lease and we do what we said we were going to do. Um, and, and I think with Dewey Radke, they, they didn't. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They wanted more from the city, and we're not asking for anything more. So, um, we had a question back there. Oh. You wanna? <clears throat> I'm from Murray County, which is right next door to Pipestone County. Uh, that's why we sit together. Uh, deep rural, um, 8,500 people, and we're running into a situation with two uh, buildings in the county. We're in an unusual situation in our county in that all of our museums, we have three, we have a historic house museum, a county museum of two very large buildings, and then an, our railroad park. So your discussion of the Little Depot is very interesting. Um, but there, all those properties are held by the county, and all of the staff are paid by the county. So we're county-led, county-run, um, and kind of run the whole show there. We have two historic properties that have come up now, and I have to go to meetings when I get home next week. One is a 1910 fire hall in a little tiny town of about 200, and the other is a very deep rural uh, church that the congregation has disbanded. And in both cases, the community is talking about making each of those their own museum. And so, which would give us five museums in a very tiny county. So. I'm, we're looking for ideas. How do we repurpose these lovely little buildings and how do we um, make them, preserve them, but also make them viable within a very limited set of resources? That's my, that's my question. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. I know, and I'm, I'm already brainstorming. <laughs> you know, so, so my first question is, is there a chance they can be developed into housing? Um, you know, just thinking of that as, as a possibility, and do you have the population base that, you know, somebody needs housing there? Uh, so that's a possibility. Um, the other idea is to make them into a business of some kind. Is there, you know, somebody who would take that on and, and try to open them as businesses? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, all right. That makes it, it makes it difficult. And at least 10 miles away from Okay. Um, boy, that's a tough one. And, you know, and the thing I was just thinking as you were saying that is that any time we've built a building somewhere, we've invested resources, you know, and so how do you not waste those resources? Um, you know, it can, can the church be moved? You know, is that a possibility? Is, does it have to be on that site to, to keep those resources? Um, you know, so there, there are all those kinds of questions that you have to ask. And, you know, I'll give you my business card, and you can uh, talk to me about it later because it's the kind of thing I like to think about and try to give you ideas on. Um, so, so we're going to leave you at that, um, and and we'll think about it. Uh, but I do want to give you all a chance to come and look at these more closely, and then if you have any uh, questions you want to ask, uh, just individually, you can do so. And I want to thank you so much for coming.
know why it don't. Oh, sure. 